Paul has left Titus, who is a very close fellow worker uh, with Paul in ministry. He's left him on the island of Crete. And there's, as you as you read through the letter, you'll know that there was ministry that had happened there. There was a faith community that had been building over there. And Paul tasks Titus with one purpose. He says, you're there to put things in order. If you want to use modern day church, you know, church strategy and church growth language, then Paul would be telling Titus, hey, Titus, listen, I've left you there to structure the church, to, uh, to, uh, to, to position the church, to posture the church in a way that it endures and it grows, not just numerically, but even spiritually, that the church over there wouldn't fade away, that it wouldn't fall away to false doctrine and it wouldn't fade away. Uh, Titus, I'm leaving you there to put what remains, all this, this little faith community group that is there to put it into order. And then the rest of the letter plays out. Chapter 1, you see one of the things, important things that, that uh, Titus is to put in place in the structuring of this faith community is wholesome leadership. You're going to put, Titus, you're going to put wholesome leadership above the structure. Leadership that is not just uh, because of position, but leadership that lives out, that models what godly living looks like, what God expects of his people. You're going to put in place wholesome leadership, leadership that is, that, that is well-versed with scripture, that can accurately handle the word of God, because that godly leadership is what is going to protect this community against false doctrine, against wrong theology that will come its way, against people that will try to disrupt entire households, as Paul would tell Titus. He says you've got to put wholesome leadership in place when you're putting things in order. Then you move to chapter 2 and last week, and, and I thank God for technology, I get to listen to the videos. And last week we looked at what wholesome living looks like. Paul tells Titus, wholesome living. And, and, and he talks about this wholesome living and he says, you know, teach what, is it, what accords with sound doctrine. And it begins, and you can't miss it, that wholesome living within the community of faith has this strong flavor of discipleship. Because he says, those who are maturer, the older men, the older women, you teach the younger. Those that have been there, those who have walked with the Lord, those who have, uh, have done that kind of a thing, you teach. And so there's this strong uh, undercurrent, this strong flavor of discipleship in a holistic community of faith. Where there is, there, there is teaching and instruction, that, both the giving and the reception of it within that community so that people are living a life that is pleasing to God. But again, Brother Rajan labored a beautiful point that a wholesome community of faith is inclusive. Everybody finds a place. The men, the women, the old, the young, the rich, the poor, the slave, the master, they're all there. There's no one people group that is excluded from it. Everyone is part of it. And, and chapter 2 talks about when you're going to structure this church, when you're going to posture it to grow, to be impactful and to endure whatever comes its way, Titus, you have to teach them about what wholesome leadership looks like and you've got to put in place these ideas and pillars of holistic community living within this community of faith. Chapter 3 would go on to talk about how you live out your life outside the community of faith with regard to authorities and rulers. So next Sunday is going to be very interesting because we'd have just finished Delhi election on 8th. And on 9th it begins by saying, remind them to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient. We'll see what God says. But that's what it talks about. What does wholesome living look like outside the community of faith to the authorities, to the rulers or to the next door neighbor who still doesn't believe? And in the middle, you've got chapter 2, verse 11 to 15. And I would title that holistic teaching or wholesome teaching. 
Look with me and let me read it for you. Verse 11 onwards. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Holistic teaching, wholesome teaching, because he ends by telling Titus, that's what you're going to be teaching. And I'm going to go work backwards. We're going to start with verse 15 and then go back to verse 11. But what we want to look at is the character of wholesome teaching and the content of wholesome teaching. And if you're saying, but you know, I, I don't teach. Don't worry. There's a heavy application for us as well. Okay, so the character of wholesome teaching and the content of wholesome teaching. So what is the character of wholesome teaching? Verse 15, declare these things, exhort and rebuke with all authority. Let no one disregard you. Holistic teaching, wholesome teaching carries within it authority. It is authoritative, not authoritarian. It is not a preaching, a message, a teaching that says shut up and do it because I said so. No, but it comes still with authority. It comes with authority and Paul is reminding Titus, who again last week Brother Rajan told you and a few weeks ago I said the same, would have been in his 20s, late 20s probably. And Paul tells him, listen, when you're teaching, teach with authority. Now, when we go to UK, we visit a few churches, we try and find something nearby where her family is, Emily and I. And uh, we've heard some great sermons, been blessed by some, but sometimes we've gone to some churches where the person, the pastor has done his homework. He's, he's got the content right and he's teaching correct theology. But the British people are very polite. And so when he delivers the sermon, it sounds very, I don't want to inconvenience you. I, you know, I know you're busy, but why don't you consider something like this in the middle of your busyness? In the, you're doing well and why don't you try? And I go away, sometimes I've, there have been these times when I've walked away and I've told Emily on the way back, he was right. I wish he just said, thus says the Lord. It's obedience or disobedience. That's it. It's not suggestion. It's not preference. It is God's word. You either obey or you disobey. There's no other option. It, is, it has implicit authority when it's God's word. It's not your own opinion because then it's your word. But it's God's word. And let me give you a good example because I've got three kids and so you get so many good analogies from that. Highly recommend parenthood. And this is a, this could go any way out of those three kids. It could be anyone uses an example, but just for this morning, I'm going to pick on uh, two of them. And so let's say Lana, the middle girl, Lana, she, she and Nathaniel, her elder brother, are having a conversation in the room. And this happens often. And it, it can be any of the three in this. But they'll be having, they'll be doing something. And, and, and she says to Nathaniel, listen, that's, uh, that's wrong. You shouldn't do that. That's wrong. You shouldn't do that. And he's a good talker. He's got my genes, I guess. I got, I got out of so much stuff in school because I could smooth talk. But he'd talk his way out and he'd be like, you know, no, but this, but that, and, and I could be this, and I wasn't really... Th and then it's his word and her word. And then she'll come to me and she'll be like, Daddy, Nathaniel is doing this. I don't think it's right. And if, it's, if, it, if she's correct in her reporting, then I will send her back with a message saying, tell him, Daddy says, stop it. Now she steps into the room with authority. It's not her authority. 
It's not because she got it right. It's not because what she thought was right is right. But now daddy has said, now it's obedience or disobedience. Till then it's just her versus him. But now it's obedience versus disobedience. It's the same with us. It's the same with us. If you want to just go out there without spending time with the Lord, without really digging through his word, without fighting through and wrestling with his word and saying, this is what God says. This is what God wants. If you don't want to do that, you just want to go out and say, I think it sounds right. So you shouldn't do that. Then it's you versus anyone else. It's your word versus theirs. Whoever has the better argument wins. And Paul tells Titus, don't do that. Don't do that. If you're going to teach, Declare with authority, but it's not your authority, Titus. Remember, it's not just because you're hotshot, you're put together, you can speak well. It's not that. It's the word of God. And he reminded that to Titus right at the start, in fact. Titus chapter 1, verse 1. Look at what it says. Paul, a servant of God and an apostle of Jesus Christ, for the sake of the faith of God's elect and their knowledge of the truth, which accords with godliness in hope of eternal life, which God who never lies promised before the ages began and at the proper time manifested in his word through the pre preaching with which I have been entrusted by the command of our Savior. Paul says, my own ministry is because of God's authority, not mine. My own ministry is because of God's authority. And Titus, they've seen you with me. So you have that authority already because you've been with me, a church planter. But remember, the authority is God's. It is God's authority when you spend time in His Word. My dad used to always tell me, talk to people, uh, talk to God about people before you talk to people about God. Spend time talking to God about people before you talk to people about God. Because there God will tell you what to tell them. You will have authority that comes from Him. Not yours. Not because you got the argument right. Not because you constructed it beautifully. But because it is the Word of God. The character of good teaching. The character of good teaching goes on. He says, exhort, encourage and rebuke. Encourage those who are doing well. Those who are walking faithfully. Those who are being obedient. Encourage them. Your teaching has to have that element. It's not just every time you open the word, you send everybody on a guilt trip. Have you seen pastors like that? If it's me, write to me, please. I'd love to be corrected. But there are some who every time they open their mouth, you just are like, I'm they're going to make me feel guilty. I might have had a fantastic week, but if I meet them, I'll just know I'm not good enough. They'll just always find one reason to make me feel guilty. But he says your teaching has to have, in the way you teach, and we're going to talk about what he's going to teach, the content, but in the way you deliver, in the way you teach, exhort, encourage those who are obedient, who are faithful. Let your teaching move them to greater heights of trust, to deeper depths of love when it comes to God. Don't, don't forget the obedient and the faithful. And then he goes on to say, and rebuke. That means correct those who walked away, correct those who are disobedient. Again, you have pastors that only want to encourage. And you'll shy away from the passages that would correct. Because, you know, if I preach this, I know this one brother, this one sister who's going through this. And they'll, you know, the offering will go down. They leave, go to another church. They leave and plant another church and won't invite me. So I'll just kind of water this part down. But Paul tells Titus, listen, rebuke with authority as well. Correct. If it is the word of God, speak it and rebuke. Correct people that are disobedient. Through the authority of the word. Not just because they're not living the way you want them to live. 
But the word of God says this, and you are doing something else. Correct. Correct them. The character of wholesome teaching. It is authoritative, but not your authority, God's authority. Because you've spent time wrestling with God and you know God wants you to say this. The character of wholesome teaching is that it encourages those who are faithful. The character of wholesome teaching is it rebukes, it corrects those who are wrong, convicts them and calls them back. But what is the content of wholesome teaching? And that's why verse 11. Verse 11. And sometimes you don't notice this, but I want to show it to you. Verse 11 down to verse 14, if you look carefully, it's one long sentence. There's no full stop. It's one long sentence. And it's one train of thought. It's all about one thing. It begins by talking about the grace of God and it talks about what this grace of God does for us. One long sentence, the theme of which is the grace of God that has appeared. Now, when you're preaching, he tells Titus, you're going to preach about this grace of God that appears. Declare these things. Preach about the grace of God that has appeared. But here's the thing. God has always been a gracious God. You read the Old Testament and you find that it was the grace of God that allowed Noah and his family to not only build the ark but get in. It was the grace of God that provided a ram when Abraham went up with Isaac. It was the grace of God that parted the Red Sea. It was the grace of God that passed over the houses with the blood of the lamb on the doorpost. It was the grace of God that led the Israelites with a pillar of fire and a pillar of, of, of cloud. It was the grace of God that rained manna from heaven. It was the grace of God that made the walls of Jericho fall down. It was the grace of God that shut the mouths of the lion when Daniel was thrown in. It was the grace of God that didn't burn Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego alive when they were thrown into the fire. It was, you can't read the Old Testament and miss the grace of God. He's not an angry God in the Old Testament and a gracious God in the New. You can't miss the grace of God all through the Old Testament. It's all over the place. So what does he mean, the grace of God appeared? He's talking about a specific manifestation of the grace of God. All of that is God's grace as well. But he says the grace of God appeared doing what? Bringing salvation for all. And so you know he's talking about the grace of God seen in Jesus Christ. The grace of God appeared in the form of the Son of God, Jesus Christ, our Lord. The grace of God appeared. And what does it do? What does Jesus do? Well, the power of Jesus is this. That he brings salvation to all. And this fits with what just happened in the verses above. Because we talked about how the faith community is, is for all people. There's no barriers. All are invited. And so it says for all people. It brought salvation to all. There's no one ethnic group, one language group, one economic group that is not allowed to hear the gospel. Oh no, that, those people, God will never save them. No, you can't. As believers, we can't say that. You and I are just like anyone else. And he'll tell you that later in chapter 3. Remember, you were just like everybody else. There's no one people group that is less worth saving when it comes to salvation, the grace of God appeared in Christ and the power of Jesus, the first thing it does is it brings salvation for all, all across the board. But then it goes on because the grace of God doesn't just save us. He goes on to tell us by the end of, by the end of this little long sentence in verse 14, he tells us how Jesus does that. See verse 14, he talks, he says, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from lawlessness. 
He gave his own life to buy, that word redeem, to buy us back, to buy us to himself. He redeems us from lawlessness. The lawlessness that was within our heart, the lawlessness that was the very cornerstone of our life, the lawlessness of the authorities above us, and I'm not talking about the government, I'm talking about the devil, the lawlessness that we lived under. He says Jesus gave himself by his own blood, his own life, his own death. He paid for us to redeem us, to buy us back from that state of lawlessness. The grace of God appeared in Jesus, bringing salvation. That's how he brings salvation. By paying for it with his own blood, with his own life, with his own death. But then it goes on, verse 12. Because the grace of God doesn't just save us and then abandon us and say, see you again when you get to heaven. It's not how the grace of God works. Verse 12, it says, this grace of God that, that brought salvation to all, it trains us. For what? It trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, in the context that you live in. So the grace of God saves you. The power of God saves you, but doesn't abandon you. It comes alongside you to train you to live the life that God wants you to live. God doesn't save you without a purpose. Salvation wasn't the purpose. Salvation was the first step. God has a purpose for saving you. Look at me at the end of verse 14 when he talks about Jesus. He says, Jesus Christ who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to do what? To say, see you in heaven? No. It says, redeemed us from lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. He wants to save. And when he saves, it is for a purpose. What is that? To purify to himself. That a people that he possesses, a people that are his own because he's bought them with his blood. A people that are his, who will do what? Who will be pure and who will be zealous for good works. And Paul would write to the church at Ephesus in Ephesians 2.10 and say, good works that God has prepared in advance for us to do. So he doesn't just save you and say, you know, now you do what you want. He saves you for a purpose. And it says over here that he trains, his grace, that presence of Jesus then in our life, trains us to live that pure life, that godly life. Look with me at 2 Peter, 2 Peter chapter 1, because he talks about this as well. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 3 onwards. His divine power, God's divine power, has granted to us all things that we need for life and godliness. Everything that you need to live this life, to live a godly life here in the present age, it says his divine power has given it to you. So what's the debit card? Like, where, how do I access it? You know, what's the pin code to access all that I need for life? Because I'm struggling. I keep falling. How do I access all that I need for life and godliness? How do I get this? He says, all that we need for life and godliness through that knowledge of him who called us. Through that growing knowledge, that relational knowledge of Jesus who has called us. You get all that you need for life and godliness through that relational intimate knowledge of Jesus as it grows within you. That understanding, that knowing of Jesus. You access all that you need for life and godliness through him who called us. By which, by that calling, the calling that he had upon you. By which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises 
what happens with those promises? You know, because we think you know, God has promised. I'm standing on the promises of God. It means health, wealth and prosperity. It means nothing bad can happen to me. Those very great and precious promises so that through them, through that promises of God, you may become partakers of His divine nature. Godly nature. That you would be partakers. You would be shareholders. You would have His divine nature in you. Those are the great precious promises. It's not just about this life and comfort. It's about the character of God within you. The nature of God within you. The ability to live upright, righteous and holy lives. And how do you do that? How do you access all that you need to do that? It is through the knowledge, that intimate knowledge of Jesus. And that's why you see the power of God saves you. But the presence of Jesus in your everyday life is what trains you to live the godly life. Now I don't know how many of you have been to a gym. I've been a few times and it didn't work out. Pretty obvious. That's, a, that's an obvious statement. But there's two things you can do when you go to a gym. There's two ways to go about it. You can enter a gym and you can, you know, try out different things. You know, the bench looks cool. I'm going to go sit. Like my when I went to Bible college, they had a little gym. I thought I'd try it out. So went, sat on the bench, you know, you pull those things up and down, you do some leg things, whatnot. You, you just, you, you try whatever it is and you hope to grow a muscle somewhere. <laughs> Fingers crossed it'll happen. The second way to go about a gym is you enter and you find a trainer. And he looks at you and he'll look at you. <laughs> and then decide what you need to do. And he'll tell you the regime that you need to follow. And you find a trainer. And he'll tell you, start with the treadmill, get your heart rate up to a point where it can handle exercise. Then he'll tell you, what do you want to do? You want, you know, I see people who do gym. I've got a lot of friends who go to the gym. It's unfortunately, not inspired me enough as yet. But they'll have, you know, leg day and arm day and this day and that day. And so today they're working on, the, you know, the calf muscle, tomorrow. the and, and they've got trainers who tell them what to do, when to do, what exercise to do. How many reps of each exercise to do, what this, what that. They've got trainers who tell them to do that. But here's the thing about a trainer in the gym. He can show you how it's done. He can get in the treadmill and show you. He can pick up those dumbbells. He can sit on the bench. He can do all the stuff. They do this, do this, do 15 of these, do this, do that. But you've got to do it. You don't lose weight watching him. You won't grow a muscle watching him do it all. You've got to do it. It'll hurt. Believe me, it will hurt. Ask someone who's gone to a gym once. If you go regularly, it maybe it's gotten less hurtful. But you go once, it hurts the next day. It will hurt, it will stretch, it will be uncomfortable. Sometimes you'll be like, you know, Bhaiya, I want to work on my bicep. And he'll say, get in the treadmill. And you're like, it doesn't make sense. I'm running. This is not growing. <laughs> doesn't make sense. But you've got to trust that he knows what he's doing. That's his job. He knows best in that moment. You've got to trust the trainer. You got to obey the trainer. You got to submit. You can't just say, I don't want to do it. Man, I, I, I won't do. You got to submit. You got to obey what he. Only then will there be progress, definite progress. When Jesus, the presence of Jesus is in your life to train us in, un, in, in renouncing ungodliness and how to live a godly life, he'll tell you, but you got to do it. You've got to trust the trainer. 
It might hurt. It might stretch. It might not seem sensible at the time. It might be something unreasonable at the time. You might want to go faster. You might want to go slower. You might want to sit down. But trust the trainer. Trust the trainer. And just on a side note, Jesus is the only trainer who died to pay the gym entrance fee for you. The joining fee for you. He's not got a selfish motive. A person who dies for you is not a selfish person. There's no selfish motive behind that. He died to pay the entrance fee for you. It is out of that same immense love with which he died for you that he will call you to do this, that and the other. To say this, that and the other or to shut up. To not do something to be still. It is out of that love of Jesus that took him to the cross that he still speaks into your life. It is the grace of God in Jesus that saves. It is the grace of God in Jesus that trains us to live a godly life. And so the power of Jesus saves. The presence of Jesus trains us. And lastly, as he moves on, it says this, this godly life that you live, it will be one that will look forward, will celebrate the promise of Jesus, that blessed hope of glory when Jesus will come again. That returning day of our Lord and Savior. We live knowing that this is not it. It doesn't matter what is going on in your life. It does not matter how hard or easy life is. It doesn't matter who wins the election on the 8th or the 11th when the results are announced. It does not matter. It will not change the fact. It's, it matters in the fact that you have to live through it. You have to leverage it for the sake of the kingdom. That way it matters. But none of this will change the truth. That Jesus is coming again. None of this will change the truth. That those that are called according to his purpose. Those that have purified themselves through the power of the grace of God. Those who have renounced ungodliness and have listened to the trainer. Obeyed the trainer. Walked with him. Those can live with their eyes fixed on heaven. Knowing that the promise of Jesus is that he will come back again. And there will be a kingdom of justice, an everlasting kingdom that will be instituted. A kingdom that will never, ever fade. With a king who is the prince of peace, the God of the universe. The grace of God has appeared. Titus, if you're going to declare, if you're going to teach, declare these things. In your preaching, if you're not telling people, about the power of Jesus that saves. Titus, look again at your sermon notes. Titus, in your preaching, if you're not telling people it is the presence of Jesus in their life that can train them to godliness, not just walk into the gym and do what you feel. You need the trainer. Titus, if you're not allowing them to see the presence of Jesus in their life and that, that relational walk with him is what will help them live the godly life. Titus, rework those sermon notes. Titus, if your sermon doesn't lift their eyes to heaven and the promise of the second coming of Jesus. If your church people, as you're setting things in order, if they're living looking at the now the whole time without realizing that there is eternity that God is preparing them for. Titus, check your sermon notes one more time. Declare these things. And when you've got it all there and you're telling them about all this, Titus, then declare it with authority. Those that are living out this life, encourage them, Titus. Those that have fallen away for whatever reason, maybe a sinful reason, maybe it's a sad reason. For whatever reason they walked away, Titus, correct them. 
rebuke them, tell them that is wrong, bring them back. So what application for us can we draw from this? Hey, if you're a teacher and there are some here who teach from this pulpit, maybe in a home group, maybe in a cornerstone campus group, maybe at, at the on-track high school group, maybe in the Sunday school teachers are busy right now. But the Sunday school teachers, maybe you teach uh, outside this community. Maybe you started a Bible study with neighbors in your colony. Maybe you teach at the campus group with YFC, YWAM or EU or something like that. Maybe you just started a small prayer group with colleagues at work or, or something like that. And it's not in the, 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 the DBF central network or so, uh, as we say. But you've done your own thing and you're teaching the word somewhere. If you're a teacher, then I would exhort you, look at your sermon notes. Look at what you're teaching. Are you teaching your people about the power of Jesus to save? Are you teaching the people about the presence of Jesus that trains and the fact that they have to be yielded to that? Are you teaching your people about the promise of Jesus that he will come again? If those are not part of the sermons that you teach or the Bible studies that you do, then look again at the sermon notes. Look again at the Bible study material. But not all of us are teachers. And even the teachers are not teachers all the time. Tomorrow's my off day. Not teaching. What happens when we put down the teacher hat? Is this passage not relevant? It's very relevant. It's very relevant when you take off the teacher hat as well. And if you never put on a teacher hat ever. And here's the relevance of it. Are you someone who is celebrating the power of Jesus that saved you? If you're not, and you're just enjoying the church show and the music and the warmth that you feel when you come here and, and you like the music, then I urge you, my brother, my sister, stop carrying the weight of your guilt and regret on your shoulders. Holistic teaching would tell you that the power of God has appeared to save you from your sin. From a life where you land up with regrets. Holistic teaching would tell you and would call you to encounter the power of Jesus and the grace of God that brings salvation. That saves you for an eternity with a God that loves you so immensely. If you're someone who has enjoyed the power of God to save you, then my brother, my sister, if, even if you're not wearing the teacher hat, are you enjoying the presence of Jesus in your life, your everyday life? Is it the presence of Jesus? Is he the trainer in the gym? Or are you running in there and trying every odd thing, hoping to grow a spiritual muscle sometimes? Or are you yielded and submitted and trusting and obeying the trainer, the Lord Jesus? Is he present or has he left the gym altogether? And you're busy thinking, I'm in the gym, I've got a dumbbell in my, I must be growing. Or is the presence of Jesus in your life training you? And are you yielded to his training? Whether you're a teacher or not. And maybe you've celebrated the salvation, the power of Jesus that brought salvation. Maybe you're enjoying the presence of God that trains you. But maybe, somehow, maybe with all the Delhi elections, this, that or the other. Or maybe your own business, your own family, whatever. Maybe somehow your eyes have moved from there to the now. Holistic teaching, wholesome teaching would say, brother, look up. Sister, look up to the promise that you're not alone. That Jesus is coming back. The God who saved you passed. Is the God who walks with you present? Is the God who is coming back for you future? The entire thing is covered by the grace that has appeared. The grace of God in Christ Jesus. Past, present and future. How 
fortunate, how blessed are those that respond to this amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. How amazing it truly is. So whether you're a teacher or not, are your, is your life one that celebrates the grace of God in all areas? And if God gives you the platform and the opportunity to teach, do you teach about the grace of God? Do you allow people through your words to encounter this amazing grace?